morning, Illuminate. It's always so good to be with you. Can we make it official? Have we turned the corner on summer yet? Yes, we have. We can agree to that together. Yeah, okay, we've turned the corner. Only in Arizona do people cheer for like 95 degree weather. You know, it's like, yeah. It's funny because I actually, there's a a lady that uh, listens uh, online from Canada and she sent me an email a couple weeks ago and she said, oh, I've just heard about the summers in Arizona. She's like, that must be awful. How can you live there? And I was like, yeah, you definitely don't want to come to Arizona. (laughs) And you enjoy that Canadian winter. Yeah, yeah. Welcome, everybody. Hey, if you're new, we have been, for the last several weeks, opening up the Bible, and we have been reading from the most influential letter ever written. Yeah, how so? Really? Really? Yeah. Uh, This letter has influenced literally millions of lives the world over for the last 2,000 years, written by a man named Paul. I'm really excited about the chapter that we're in this morning, Romans chapter 4. And the reason is because it has one grand theme, and that theme is this. Your salvation does not come as a result of what you do. Rather, it comes as a result of who you know. It's not a result of the things you've accomplished It's a result of what's been accomplished on your behalf. The Apostle Paul is going to make this argument in a very straightforward but profound way. I don't know if there is a better theme for the world in which we live in today because there are literally millions of people the world over who subscribe to a religion, a worldview, some form of self-realization that believes if you just do enough, if your good outweighs your bad, then in the end, God will throw open the gates of heaven for you. By the way, that's nowhere in the Bible, not even close. But that's the prevailing thought amongst many people today. Paul's going to destroy that idea with just a few verses. Now, let's recap a bit. The first three chapters in Romans, Paul essentially levels humanity. He says, listen, we're all in the same boat. The playing field is absolutely level. All of us fall under the judgment of a righteous and holy God. Really? How so? All of us? Yeah. So he begins speaking to the God deniers. And he says, you have no excuse. (laughs) You have no excuse for rejecting God, and here's why. Creation, nature, design, order, complexity, all of these things we see in the natural world around us, the fingerprints of God are everywhere. Design, order, complexity, these things imply a designer and a creator. The more complicated the design, the more intelligent the designer. It's undeniable. So why is it denied? He goes on, it's very insightful. He says, the reason why many people reject God is because they don't want there to be a God. They suppress the truth that they know is around them. They suppress it by virtue of their unrighteous actions. In other words, it's the idea that I don't want anybody telling me what to do or to hold me accountable for what I do. So I'll just live as if God doesn't exist. (laughs) He says, you have no excuse. 
Then he turns his attention to the religious people because after that argument, the religious people could be thumbing their noses at all the irreligious people. And he says, no, 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 let's talk about you. Let's talk about you. You think that you can force God to open the gates of heaven for you. Essentially, that's what your belief is because if you do all the things he asks you to do, do them perfectly. By the way, you gotta do them perfectly. You can't do that. You still fall short. You can't do it on your own. You can't become your own savior. It has to be supplied for you. Then he speaks to those who, who are, are the moral type, the moralist. These are the people who, are like, who say, well, I'm just really, I'm not that bad of a person. I'm pretty, I'm pretty good. Paul says, well, you're probably not as good as you actually think you are because the standards by which you wanna be treated you don't even maintain those standards with any kind of consistency. You think it's wrong to be lied to? You lie to people all the time. You don't, want to, you don't want people manipulating you? You do that to others. You defraud people. You cheat them. You talk behind their backs. So you moralists, I'm sorry, but you're not as good as you think, and you also fall under the righteous judgment of a holy God. It's a problem for all of us. That's so why Paul introduces this concept. There's only one way by which you can be saved, and it's not through your own efforts. Now, again, to put this in its proper historical context, to Paul's Jewish audience, this was a new concept because they believed fiercely that if they could, if they could just maintain everything that's written in the law in the Old Testament, think of the codified in the Ten Commandments, if we can just keep those things, then God will be pleased with us. And so what Paul does in the first half of Romans chapter four, he says, okay, let's just have this conversation. It's actually not that way. And it's never been that way. And so he's going to pull two great Jewish patriarchs from the past and use them as examples that salvation never came based upon what a person did, but it was always delivered as a result of one's faith or trust in God. And so with that in mind, Romans chapter four, verse one, he says, what then shall we say was gained by, and then he drops it. Example number one, Abraham. And just, he's so smart. He knows that when he drops the name Abraham, this is the greatest of all Jewish patriarchs. It all started with him. He's the progenitor of the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. He's their guy. He says, let's talk about him. Some rabbis believe that he was the, the prime example of someone who lived such a perfect life. He was pleasing to God. Paul understands this. Let's talk about Abraham. Let's talk about the method, the means by which he was saved. He's our forefather according to the flesh. He's the one that started this whole nation of Israel thing. For if Abraham was justified by works, when you read the word justified, think of being put in a right relationship with God. You have, here's the big problem for humanity. You have sinful humanity and a holy God. A holy God can't turn a blind eye to all the junk that we do. He has to deal with it. Otherwise, he would not be just. Therein lies the problem. So how do you fix that problem? How is that relationship made right? For if Abraham was justified by works, then that guy has something to be proud of. He has something to, be, to boast about, and I'll explain that in a second. But not before God, because that's not the thing you boast about before God, your works. For what does the scripture say? So what he does now is he reaches back into that moment when Abraham was saved. He's gonna quote from Genesis chapter 15 and verse three. So he says, he's like, what does our Bible actually say about his salvation? Well, let's read it. 
Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Abraham is a really interesting case study. Uh, What can we learn from him? Well, if you know his story, then you understand why Paul says, if it was a matter of works pleasing God, that dude wins. (laughs) He surpasses everybody. And here's why. You might know this story. He has a son named Isaac. And God, in a test of his faith, says, I want you to offer up your son as a sacrifice. That's asking a lot. And he was willing to do it. That's why Paul says, okay, if salvation comes by works, Abraham has a lot to brag about. (laughs) What kind of work are you willing to do to please God? Well, I I helped an elderly woman cross the street. Abraham's like, I was willing to sacrifice my son next. Okay, so we're just in the first few verses, okay? Paul is about to demolish this idea that you are saved because of what you do. If that was the case, Abraham is our winner. He's willing to do something that none of the rest of you are willing to do, okay? So let's just remember that, okay? What what do we learn from Abraham? Well, what do the scriptures actually say about him and his salvation? So that's why he reaches in. He's literally quote Genesis chapter 15, verse three. The moment Abraham was saved, what happened? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So here's the point he wants to make. Abraham was justified by faith apart from any work he came to be known for. Belief is the key. Now, let me put this in its context because this is not a small form of belief. Here's what happened back in Genesis chapter 15. Abraham wages war, wins, fights the battle. And afterward, God appears to him and says, I am your shield. In other words, the reason why you were so successful That's on me. Then he says, I will be your reward and I will reward you. Now, Abraham's thinking, this is big. This is not a small thing. But wait a minute. If you're gonna reward me, there's an issue I have. And so he says to God in response, I don't have any heirs. I don't have uh, someone from my own body that will inherit. So if you wanna reward me with something, great, but who am I gonna pass that on to? I don't, there's nobody in my, my family that I can, I don't have any children. Now, back in the day, you were considered blessed if you had two things, land and children. He had land, he had no kids. I want children, God. That's what I want. You can bless me, you can, you can reward me, but what is that if I don't? have those to, I can pass it on to. And so God takes him outside, so this is dark out. Let's go outside the tent. Look up at the stars. When's the last time you were outside the city lights? I mean like outside the city lights and you looked up at the sky and you were blown away by how many stars there are. I mean, for, maybe for you, it's been, maybe it's been years. There's a lot of stars up there, guys. You gotta get out of the city. You have a really dark place and you're like, it is like a light show. Every little centimeter of the sky is just littered with dots. So he takes him outside, and that's what it would have been like for him. 
he looks up and he sees thousands of stars and God says, see all those stars? Count them if you can because your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. That's a big deal. Bigger than you might know because the text tells us that they were way beyond childbearing years. Sarah, 90. Abraham, 100. Stuff gets old. (laughs) Parts fail that can't be replaced. This is like National Enquirer stuff. (gasps) 90-year-old woman gets pregnant. says, Abraham agreed. Yep, gotcha. If that's a promise coming from you, I trust it. I trust you. I believe you. What does Paul say? It was counted to him as righteousness. Now, you have to understand this word counted to understand the depth of what he's saying because it's pretty profound. This was actually an accounting term back in the day. And, and it would appear uh, on, on ledgers, okay? And literally what it referred to was something that was either credited to your account or removed from your account. So you think of that ledger and you think you have this debt, but all of a sudden this debt is no longer counted against you. It's been removed from your ledger. So what Paul's gonna explain later is Jesus is the one who comes on the scene and he takes all of your debt of sin and puts it on himself. He moves it from his ledger, from your ledger to his ledger. And now it's on him. But then something else happens. There's something else that's counted. You look in in your bank account, all of a sudden there's a new deposit. There's been a withdrawal of all your junk and all your sin and what's been put on deposit, this is what the text literally is telling you, what's been put on deposit is the righteousness of Christ, not your own, If salvation comes as a matter of your own works, your own righteousness, that's only gonna lead you to become self-righteous. Like I said earlier, how many good works do you have? Two, I have 10. I'm so much more saved than you. See how beautiful it is? Nothing like the Christian message. This comes from the mind of a transcendent God. So I said, millions of people the world over are struggling. They're caught up in this right now. You know, it's like, how much broken glass do I have to walk across to please God? Paul's like, I'm about to destroy that. Christianity is so much better. Grace, gift, mercy, forgiveness will do what works can never do. The law works. Those things bind you up. They make you a nervous wreck. These other things set you free. They have far more power in your life than any work that you might think you can do. So uh, there's so much here. Paul is quite brilliant, right? It's quite brilliant. He's using all of these accounting terms so that you understand exactly what's happening. It doesn't become because of some work that you've done Paul is absolutely destroying the wrongful use of Abraham as an example of someone who earned his way to God. He says it's a gift, a gift to you from God. Now, for some of us, that's really hard to believe because if you're a type A, if you're an achiever, if you like to get things done, you're always thinking about taking the next hill and you derive a certain sense of satisfaction because of what you do. Hard to believe that anything would be given to me like this as a gift, So Paul helps you with an illustration, verse four. He says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due, which makes sense. So say you work a couple of weeks, you're crushing it at your job, 
You hope maybe even you might get some special recognition. And lo and behold, the boss walks up to you with an envelope and he says, hey, I have a little gift for you. And immediately you start to think, oh, this is great. He's recognized my high achievement. You open it up and it's your regular paycheck. This is not a gift. You owe me this because I did the work. The boss is like, it's a gift. The one who works does not receive a gift, but what he is owed. Paul makes the point, what you owe in terms of your debt cannot be repaid by you. Someone has to do it for you. To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. He continues with the idea in verse five. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Jesus did the work for you. It's belief in him that credits your account. You have the righteousness of Christ. So when God looks at you through the lenses of his son, you're good. You're on good terms with God. You've been justified, placed in a right relationship. Your losses, so to speak, are removed from your balance sheet. Now, I need to pause here and mention the fact that in many places in Paul's writings, he encourages us to do good works, but not so that we can be saved, but in light of the fact that our salvation comes to us freely and in light of the fact that it actually costs the gift giver quite a bit. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's God's grace unmerited favor through your faith, trusting in him. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift that comes to you from God, not a result, result of works. And get, get this, here's why. So that no one may boast, because if you did all these good things, again, it would lead to your own self-righteousness. It's not about that. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So here's what he's saying. God's grace is the motivation for the good works that we do especially when you consider the nature of the gift and what it costs the gift giver. I think I might've shared it like this before. If I say to you, I wanna forgive, pay for, erase all of your debt on your behalf. And you're like, that's amazing. Which debt? My $1,500 credit card payment? my $10,000 car loan, or my $500,000 mortgage. Which debt are you gonna pay? And I say, I'm gonna pay it all. I'm gonna get rid of all of it. And then you watch what I have to go through in order to relieve all your debts. I sell everything I have. Uh, I, I make myself poor. I make myself homeless. I take on three jobs and I do it all, I take all your debt and absorb it. And I'm grinding it out day after day after day. And you see this in me. What is your disposition toward me gonna be like? You're probably not gonna take advantage of me. You're probably gonna look at me as someone that is treating you in a way that you might not deserve. And this is gonna influence the way you live your life, or at least it should. 
you're probably going to be very careful with how you spend your money because every time you go into debt, you're throwing that debt back on me. You might be more inclined to be gracious to the people around you and forgiving to those who might owe you something. See what Paul's saying? We don't do good works because they're what saves us. We do good works, man, because we're motivated because of the gift that God has given us and what it cost him in his son. That's the motivation. That's why I said earlier, it's like works, even works of the law, they don't have the power that God's grace has in your life when you really understand what you've been given. So Paul uses another example from the Old Testament. He's used the great patriarch Abraham. Secondly, he's gonna use probably their greatest king, and that is King David. Now, you might know the story of this guy. He wasn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination, and yet Paul says he had this undeserved righteousness given to his account in spite of all that he did. So someone could look at Abraham and go, well, all in all, he was a pretty good guy, tried to do the right things. There were a couple of nefarious things that went down between him and his wife, but for the most part, pretty decent guy. Okay, then let's look at David. He commits adultery with Bathsheba. She gets pregnant. He trips out because what happens is when you go down that path of sin, it's always the sugar coating and never the cavity. And then you find yourself in a place that you thought you would never be. And sin always causes you to hide. And it's this web that you crawl across. And all of a sudden, it's like, as soon as that web starts to tingle a little bit, here comes the spider. And you're starting to get wrapped up. And that's what happens to David. And in his human thinking, he's like, I can solve this problem that I created. I'll just have her husband killed. Literally, first degree murder. And he's a good dude, he's a noble man, man of integrity, loyal to David. David sends him out in the battle and he tells the troops to pull back, leaving him defenseless and he gets slaughtered. That's Bathsheba's husband. And David's like, okay, I solved that problem. But then all of a sudden he gets a knock on his door from his buddy and he's like, hey, let me tell you a story about this guy that had all these sheep, but there's this one little sheep that he wanted that wasn't his. And so he went out and he took it from this guy that only had one. What should happen to that guy? And David's like, oh, that guy should die. And then Nathan says, it's you. It's you, you hypocrite. You think you're getting away with it, but you're not. You've caused a lot of destruction and it's coming down. And what happens to David's credit, his heart is broken. But there's more to this story. Because David realizes that what he's done, according to the text, he actually deserves to die. Verse six, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Yeah, David's that guy. David's like, hey, if I'm the guy that you're gonna credit works, not me, my works haven't been so good. But he says, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Guess what? That same word for count is the same word used to describe Abraham. David had all of this junk on his account. But when confronted, David's heart melts, and he's repentant. He had broken three of the 10 commandments, at least three. He understands he's deserving of death. And that's why he writes this. This is the backdrop against Psalm 51. 
He says, God, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. See, if, it was, if I could just do some work to absolve myself of this sin, I would do it. I would make that sacrifice. But that's not where it's at. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. I love this word. Brokenness will come into your life. Life has a way of taking things away from you. There will be relationships that are horribly damaged in your life. You know what I'm talking about. Many of you are living it. Many of us are living it. There are unwanted circumstances that come into your life. And what happens is, this is God's crucible, God's megaphone, if you will. And the response is meant to soften us. And that's exactly what happens to David. He says, it's really about my heart recognizing what's inside and being honest and saying, this is a hard issue for me. I was greedy. I had lustful intent. I committed murder. And that's all on me. And I was wrong. In other words, David says, there's no work I can do to absolve me of my wrongs. That's why the key verse, verses in all of Romans, Romans chapter three, verse 21, this is our only hope. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, the works of the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So at this point, Paul's been using Jewish examples of God's grace, which could lead some to think, well, okay, we're buying into this, but this is only for like the chosen people, right? It's only for the Jewish race, the nation of Israel. These are the people that would receive God's free gifts. And uh, Paul says, actually, no, um, that's not the case. And I'm gonna prove it to you. This is how fiercely they, they believe that uh, this, uh, the the sign of their Jewishness back in the day was circumcision. Like that was the covenant between, between the people, between the men of Israel and God. It was circumcision, all right? So there's an ancient Jewish book. It's called Akedoth Jezehayak, and I'm sure I'm butchering that name. But it's the story, and I think I might have shared this with you in the past too. It's the story of Abraham, and he has a really, really interesting job. Abraham is sitting at the gates of hell, and it is his job to inspect every male because no circumcised male should ever, ever be allowed into hell. Why? Because that work alone meant that you were in a right relationship with God. That's how fiercely the ancient rabbis believed in works. If it was anything, it was gonna be no, so you thought your job was bad. Abraham did this for eternity. He's got his folding chair out, he's sitting at the gates of hell, and he's like. See? So they're thinking, okay, well, clearly, at least, right? Okay, we're with you, but what about, what about that, that, that one sign, that sign that was so important to us? What about that? Clearly, then, all that you're talking about just applies to the, to the Jews and not to the Gentiles, right? Uh, well, not so. Verse nine, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Faith was. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he'd been circumcised? That's a great question. When was he declared righteous? 
Was that after or before? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believed, Jew or Gentile, without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them, the non-Jew as well, and to make him, Abraham, the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith. Not about circumcision, it's about faith that our father Abraham had before he was counted. That's a lot of circumcision talk for nine o'clock in the morning. Um, here's what he's saying. Back in Genesis chapter 15, when God took Abraham outside, he had that nighttime experience that was 14 years before, before he was circumcised. So I guess you could say Abraham was a Gentile when he was saved. And his listeners are like, well, what? <laughs> what? Everything is just being dismantled by Paul. So if it's not circumcision, Paul goes on to say, then even less so works of the law. Verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. It's like, how many different ways can he say it? For if, it's, for if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, the heirs, faith is null and the prof, the prof promise is void. So in other words, it says, if you, could, if you could gain favor simply by doing works of the law, then faith is not required. But you see, he says, the law brings wrath, meaning that there is no excuse for denying one's culpability and sin because the law spells it out in black and, and white. Then you get this, this seemingly funky uh, phrase here at the end. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. What does that mean? Well, the key word there is transgression because that word literally means to break what is known. That's transgression. Something is known, it's been made clear, and you're breaking it. That's the law. The law was, was known, you're breaking it. I'll give you an example. Um, my friends and I were young. One of my buddies is sitting right over here. When we were in high school, we used to bird hunt right where the 16th hole is at the TPC, Chauncey's Arabians, way back in the day. Birds would fly over the canal, and, and um, Chauncey had his horses there, and the grain, and so forth, and birds would just fly over all over. We'd get our lawn chairs out, and we'd have a good time. And so every once in a while, we'd come across a barbed wire fence. And, you know, barbed wire fences are meant to keep people out. But there are acres and acres of property out there. And so, yeah, every once in a while, we might be like, you know what, that looks like a really good spot on the other side of the fence. And we'd be like, well... There's nothing posted, you know? It's like, it doesn't say no trespassing. We step right over it. But then what happens when all of a sudden we show up and a sign's posted, no trespassing, no hunting? Well, that's where I'm gonna end the story. But see, what I'm saying, what I'm, my point is, my point, my point is, it was, it was specified. Now, without a doubt, we would know that we were transgressors, you see? because it was spelled out for us. That's what he's saying. He's saying that's what the purpose of the law. It's in black and white. You have no excuse. You can read it. Read the Ten Commandments. You're in violation of them all the time. That's the purpose of the law. So the historical fact is that the law came through Moses 400 years after Abraham had his nighttime experience with God where he's like, I believe, I trust you. 
man, Paul, okay, you got it, you got it. Clearly, just in the first part of chapter four, he demolishes this idea that you can earn your way to God. I began by saying countless millions firmly trust in some form of religious activity, ceremony, to get them right with God. And so what does this mean to you and me? Well, I'll tell you what it means to me. It's like taking a nice breathing exercise. That kind of pressure is off. There's this beautiful verse in 1 John. You can know that you have eternal life. And this is what so many of my Jehovah Witness, my Mormon friends, I mean, I can go down the list. They, they, don't, they do not have that certainty. And they'll tell you straight up, I don't know for certain. Why? Because they don't know if they've worked hard enough. John told me, I can know. I know that I have eternal life. How? He who has the son has life. Why? Because Jesus removes your debt from your ledger, puts it on his, he can clear it for you, and then he gives you on deposit to your account his righteousness. And that's how you live a righteous life. He, couldn't, he could not be any clearer. Your eternal destiny does not depend on you. But because of the way in which God secured it, you should be highly motivated to live in light of what was done for you. So I think this is in part one of the many reasons why as Jesus was about to leave, having passed over a meal with his disciples, he says, remember my death. It all comes back to the cross that secures our salvation and it is the motivation for godly living day in and day out. So as we enter into this time of communion, I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes if you would, please. There'll be a, there's some verses on the screen. I'm gonna have the worship team come out. And I would just encourage you to use this time as a time of reflection to consider what it cost What it cost God to bring you, I should say this, what it cost God to solve your greatest problem. (laughs) We all have problems and issues in life, but your greatest problem being separated from the God who created you, Jesus solved that. So Father, as we enter into this time, Lord, we are grateful for the work of Jesus. We're just humbled by it and, and we are moved to want to return our lives to you in exchange. Because there's just this simple truth. You always bless that which is in the greatest likeness to your son, Jesus. You always bless that. And God, we want your blessing in your favor. So God, speak to us now by the power of your spirit, we pray in Christ's name.